There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Why Would You Tell Me That, a podcast with me, Dave Moore, and him, Neil Delamere, where we explore these wonderful and weird tales and stories and facts. But we'll get to that because before we move on, we must tell you about a live episode of Why Would You Tell Me That. We told you about it at the beginning of Series 3 in Episode 1. And we want to tell you, first of all, that the tickets are selling really well. So thank you to everybody who's bought tickets to come and see Why Would You Tell Me That live in Smock Alley in Dublin on the 4th of April. Uh, but also, we must reveal, Neil, who our special guest is. It is the world's foremost gardener and all-around TV personality. Yeah. It is the ghost of Capability Brown. No, it is <laughs> Dermot Gavin, who people will know and love, both from UK and Irish television. And he's going to talk to us about his favorite plant because I've insisted on that, but he's not necessarily going to use that as the bulk of his why would you tell me that experience? No, we, we told you that our guest, who we're so excited to have, he's just a brilliant, brilliant man, a hilarious person to talk to, um, but also surprising because we told you that he wouldn't pick something from within what we would expect him, you know, his sphere of expertise. He's pretty much, as Neil said, like the most famous gardener in the world, certainly the most famous gardener in these fair isles of ours. So when we approached him and said, hey, will you do our live episode? First of all, he said yes, which was great. And then we said, okay, well, what plant do you want to talk about? What tree, what amazing horticultural stories? And he went, no, I want to tell you about, and he he said a guy's name and I went, who? And he went, exactly. And I was like, (laughs) okay, now I'm into this. I'm into this. So, we don't want to give away what he's going to talk about, but he is going to tell us about an incredible person who has changed the world, but you don't know who he is. And if you want to go and see that, well, why wouldn't you? <laughs> you can go to uh, my website. You can go to all our socials at Dave Today FM on uh, Instagram at Neil Delamere Comedy on Instagram. It's going to be in the show notes of this. It's on Smock Alley's website as well. So you know where you can go. Yeah, go get your tickets, get them before they sell, because they are selling really well, and we're so grateful and so proud that they've done so well so far. Uh, But yes, that is the 4th of April, Smock Alley, why would you tell me that live? And thank you once again to everybody who's got tickets, and thank you to everybody who's listening right now. But speaking of listening right now, let's move on. What have you got for us this week? I want you to imagine your front door. Okay, just imagine your front door in your head. Okay. Oddly enough, you're squeezing your eyes on the call and you it's, are looking it's up. It's just so far away. It's in a different <laughs> wing of the of the manor. 
Um, sorry, could somebody please bring me a photographic representation of my front door? Tis years since I've been outside. Okay, he's he's ringing a bell now, and a weirdly a weirdly formed man called Igor is coming up the stairs. Igor, Igor. Could you please remind me what the front door looks like? No, you've completely destroyed this. It's not up to Igor to tell you. I'm trying to access your memory. Okay, okay, okay. If you I, close your eyes. Okay, I'm picturing my front door. Okay, so you are visualizing your front Sorry door. Sorry to interrupt you there, but I have two front doors. So I have a porch, and then I have an internal front door, which is also an external front door. So which one do you want me to, to visualize? Sorry, I was just I was just wondering how I'm going to kill you. I think what I'm probably what I'm going to do is I'm going to close you, the front door, the porch door in your head repeatedly. And then when I have to dispose of your body, I'm going to use your front door to sever your feet from your calves. I have two front doors. Shut up. <laughs> My point is, is that you can imagine your front door in your head. Yeah. There are people who cannot do this. They can't imagine their front door. No, that's a very specific medical condition, isn't it? <laughs> I was going to say, anti-porto <laughs> makey-uppy head. Yeah, it's a very strange Do- disease. Doctor, doctor, I have problems uh, with front doors. How did you get in here? I don't know. <laughs> hey, that's why he's a comedian. Um, it, <laughs> so some people can't imagine things visually. So they have right. no mind's eye, shall we say. And it's called aphantasia. And we are going to talk to Professor Adam Zeman uh, in part two. He's a cognitive neurologist, and he is the man who has actually coined the phrase aphantasia. Wait, wait, wait. You've got someone on the show who made up the name of a thing that's a thing? Yes. Oh, Neil, that is good. And that is why he is doing that, and not a man who utters a sentence. He's a man who made up a thing that became a thing. (laughs) Yes. And this is an example of how cranially reduced I am versus the type of people we have on this podcast. David speaks about five different languages. Uh, English is the worst of all of those languages in terms of visibility. But because we're chatting about naming things, let's talk about names, right? Love it. First question. You speak French, don't you? Mm-hmm. Oui, je parle un peu français, oui. Would you call your child Kevin in France? You have a little baby, you're going to call him Kevin. Well, actually, I have a very, well, I say very popular. It was very popular when I was 16 because there were occasionally boobies drawn in it. I have a a cartoon, a comic book called, and this is written in French this way, Little Kevin. So Little Kevin is like Little, it was written L-I-T-T-E-U-L, the way a French person would say the word Little. Little Kevin. So I don't know why I wouldn't call my son Kevin. This was a few years ago though, wasn't it? Oh, this is when I was 16. So, yes, quite a few years ago. Many years ago. Okay, well, it may not be advisable. There's only two Kevins in the National Assembly, which is 577 legislators. They're actually uh, both members of Marine Le Pen's far right-wing party. Uh, To give you context there, there's 15 Philippes, there's 10 Nicholases, there's 10 Annes, if you kind of consider all the variations of Annes. Right. But there's a real snobbishness around the name in certain quarters in France. The French talk about the curse of the Kevins. In 2015, the director of the Observatory of Discriminations, which is a watchdog group, claimed that a candidate named Kevin had a 10 to 30 percent lower chance of being hired for a job than a competitor named Arthur. Sorry, I'm trying to work out where this prejudice might have come from. Is it like, do they really hate the little kid in Home Alone? Like they're all just like, Kevin! And they just go, I can't cope with him. 
It's funny you mentioned that, but yeah, yeah, you have a 10 to 30% chance of being hired for a job, a worse chance than uh, somebody called Arthur. If your which, name is Kevin. Which is deeply unfair, unless the job itself is pulling a sword from a stone, in which case, I mean, <laughs> Arthur's a pretty much a shoe in for that. This is, there's a Kevin kind of um, discrimination, not, I'm not going to say policy, but certainly Kevins have faced discrimination in countries like Germany, and it's called, it's actually called Kevinismus, right? I-S-M-U-S. Right. During the presidential election last year, the extreme right-wing candidate Eric Zemmour condemned the name as a symptom of defrancisation and Americanization. Where, where is this coming from? So, I'll tell you. Okay, this is the basis. So we know Kevin is Quivin, which is an Irish name, yeah. right? Uh, uh, massively popular in America in the like fifty-seven to seventy-nine. It was in the top twenty names every single year. Right. In nineteen fifty-two, in France, there was only four Kevins, so it's not popular. Right. They reckon it was, they were the first Kevins as well. They started collecting the data in 1900. So four Kevins in 1952. Between 89 and 1994, so think about when you were 16, Kevin was France's most popular name for boys. What? Sorry, give me the years again. 1989 to 1994. Right. So for five years, having not been popular forever, it was really popular. Yeah, 14,109 births in 1991. Versus four from 1952. Okay. And what you said, they reckon it was Kevin Costner from Dances with Wolves and no. Kevin McAllister from Macaulay Culkin. No way. So that actually popularized it. Yeah. And it's considered this sort of gauche, um, in some quarters, this gauche American import. And France is becoming less French by importing this name. And it's it's, it's connected to, to that sort of idea. Okay. So then explain to me why, having had a surge in popularity based on probably the, yeah, I mean, I can think of all the f- famous Kevins, Kevin Bacon, and I'm sure you know Kevin Federline. Yes. Who's that? He's the the man who who uh, Federline was one of the first um, delivery companies. <laughs> so there was uh, F- Federal Express. <laughs> Federline. No. Was he married to Britney Spears? Yes, Neil Delamere was your bloody look at you. I, mean, I did not expect <laughs> to get such pop culture out of Neil Delamere today. But I'm delighted. Little do into a false sense of yeah. security, didn't I? You did. Uh, so cause I'm thinking of all the famous Kevin's, right? So that's fine. I can understand Costner. Yeah. You know, McAllister, Bacon, all of a sudden, yeah, Kevin is big. However, why has it now come to a situation where there are A, very few Kevins, and B, the ones that are called Kevin can't get jobs? Well, there's a backlash, I suppose, to the popularity of something, so it's a cyclical thing. One of the theories I was reading was that originally the popularity of names would come from the bourgeoisie, and they then it would, they would say, listen, David is popular, and then that would filter down to the middle class, and that would filter down to the working class. The idea that these people in France were looking outside of France, this is one of the theories, and looking externally rather than from internal validation right. from, from their betters, shall we say, really annoyed their betters. And then I ah. suppose they, maybe they stirred the pot a little bit and went, oh, this is very American. But one way or the other, there appears to be a genuine reticence in certain quarters to call your child Kevin. I don't want to offend you. Yes. But I, for the life of me, cannot picture you yeah. as a baby <laughs> called Neil or any baby being called Neil. How how do you call a baby Neil? Neil is such a grown-up man's name. My mother wanted to call me, she wanted to call me Neil, but she wanted to spell it Niall. Yeah, can I say, to those parents who did that, and I was in class, 
in school with a, one of the nicest men in the world called Niall Dunn. Neil Dunn. I still don't know what his name is because it was N-I-A-L-L and I was like, Niall, and everyone's like, no, it's Neil. I was like, oh, what? And for six years in school and now I still know him to this day 30 odd years later, and I, do, I would call him Dunner because I don't know what his first name is. Okay, well, there's two things. One, Neil, N-I-A-L-L is, is Neil, as in Neil Nienalach, who was Niall of the Nine Hostages who kidnapped St. Patrick. So it's an Irish name, right? right. And that's also where we have the Neils saga from the Snorri Sturluson famous Lysandic sagas. By the way, the second <laughs> you, thing is... You're just making sounds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, uh, I had a guy called Neil Dunn in my class as well, which is fucking weird. <laughs> Don is such an awfully name in fairness. <laughs> Hi, Hang on. Did you call him Neil or did you call him Niall? He was always no, he spelt it he spelt it N-E-I-L. Yeah, because he was sensible like your parents, except for the fact that they gave you a man's name when you were an infant. <laughs> he comes out like with a pint in one hand and a moustache. Here we are, I'm Neil. How's it going? <laughs> How's it going? I just put me cuddle down over here now. I've been working a couple of jobs in there. If the revenue asked when it was in the womb, I was just off on the sick. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why Neil is Ronnie Drew. No, nor way, do I, that's... but I'm loving it. Absolutely loving it. Have I told you the saga about my dog, by the way, a couple of years ago? Well, the fact that your dog has three legs? Is that no, the no, one? No, 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 no. This is, this is okay. Oh, previous, previous dog. This is okay. a previous occasion, right? So <laughs> at the time, I loved that dog. Uh, my wife wanted a second dog, and I said, no, I didn't want the second dog, right? And um, we both spoiled that dog. Compared to like when having a dog in the 80s. I had a dog in the 80s, and he was... Like, you know, you put a collar on him and the next one was like, oh, so you've joined Greenpeace, you hippie bastard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. And he was one of those mongrels that's utterly indestructible, like a cross between a spaniel and the black box flight recorder from a jumbo jet. <laughs> He'd be the last yes. thing left after <laughs> Armageddon. They're, they're always black with brownie gold colors. No matter what, if they're one of those indestructible mongrels, that's yeah. their coloring. And a little white flash yes, in the front the of their chest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that was my original dog, right? And then I had a dog a couple of years ago called Charlie, right? So I bring Charlie to the vet anyway. And uh, I, the vet goes, what's his name? And I go, well, Charlie, he was here last week. And they went, what's his second name? And I was like, I don't know, mm-hmm. the dog? <laughs> I mean, it hasn't really come up in terms of his surnames. And I, I said, put down uh, Charlie Delamere. Look for Charlie Delamere. And um, she goes, oh, we don't have Charlie Delamere, but we do have Charlie. And he gave my wife's name. He was under my wife's surname. Dave. Oh, my God. I went straight back to the house where my wife was having lunch with a friend of ours. And I was like, what is going on here? The dog should be called Charlie Delamere. She goes, what's the big deal? I said, I, he's under my name. I said, I don't want the other dogs to, to think that I'm not the father. That's that's that's. <laughs> I'm very upset about this. And she's like, well, he's used to it now. And then her friend goes, well, why don't you call him the double-barreled name? I was like, because you other dogs will think he's a wanker. That's why. <laughs> I love the way your wife said he's used to it now. Like she's going around <laughs> using both of his names all the time, <laughs> bringing him in for dinner. He had a little embossed card with his, with his name on it. And then her friend goes, why don't you call him Charlie Delamere and she can call him Charlie her name? And I was like, because we're not calling him two different things. He's not Derry. What do you, do you, want, do you want me to call him London Charlie or something <laughs> and then my wife goes you call him Charlie Delamere I didn't know my wife actually goes why don't you call we'll call the next dog your surname right and I went, well I'm not waiting 10 years for Charlie to die so we got two dogs in the end and I think that's what the whole thing was about to be perfectly honest which I think I was completely tricked into well it. You, you missed out you missed out one little trick here which is how I named our dog so Lorna yeah Lorna so Lorna great name for dog and I love Charlie and I love Lola I love dogs with normal human names and not 
Oh my God, a dog called Neil would be incredible. Yeah. Imagine that. Neil, Neil, come here. Come here. What are you doing, Neil? Stop it. Stop sniffing that dog. That's an amazing name for it. Sorry, Neil. <laughs> you're, uh, you're no longer human to me. <laughs> you're now just a dog that looks like a man. Okay. Anyway, what we did was my wife loves a dog with a human name. Okay. And okay. I don't I don't mean like, you know, like, let's face it, Lola. Of course, it's a human name, but it's, it's quite a dog name, though. Yeah. A doggy name ring to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what she did was she wrote acceptable names for the new puppy. So there was Margaret. There was <laughs> Rosemary. We couldn't call my three-legged do- dog Margaret because the short is Peg. And that <laughs> yeah, that's true. That so Rosemary, there. yeah. Rosemary. There was Margaret. There was Rosemary. There was Celine. There were just, there were like women's, you know, women who work in the church. There were those <laughs> kinds of names. Like, okay. go down. You know what you need to know? Go down to the parish hall and Celine will have you signed up. And those kind of names, right? And Excellent. Lorna was in there. Lorna will take care of you, whatever. Okay. So what we did was then we wrote seven or eight of them down on a piece of paper and left them on the ground by the fireplace and then yeah. held the puppy back at the sofa. And then eventually he said, one, two, three, kind of like a wind-up toy, go. And the yeah. dog kind of sniffed around and saw us put them down. So she went over to see what we'd done. And then we waited until she put one in her mouth and then we wrestled her on the ground, got it out of her mouth, and that was Lorna. And hence she was named. She was called Bonio from then on because we <laughs> hadn't cleaned up all her treats. That's a that's a lovely, sweet little thing. Yeah, well, I thought it was in a more interesting way than just, you know, settling on a name. Which, so we did the same for our children, let them crawl across the floor until one of them landed on. It took ages. They couldn't crawl for about nine months. They were nameless for nine months. <laughs> Your kids, Toblerone, Kit Kat and Golden Crisp are some of the sweetest no, children I have ever met. the fireplace, Bordemona. <laughs> zip fire lighter extra vision there was a dvd box down there <laughs> okay we mentioned dances with wolves right and home alone so we're going to stick with films but we're still in the realms of of names have you heard of the well-known director alan smithy s-m-i-t-h-e-e yep. no 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 i'm not confident no okay if you look him up on IMDb, he's about, oh, he's well over 100 directorial credits. What? Right? Now, the issue with him is, it, it's, that's good going. Well over 100 films he directed. That is tough considering he didn't exist. What? And doesn't exist. So, he's got, fi- he's got over 100 IMDb credits and he doesn't yeah. exist. He is not a man. What's happening, Neil? Alan Smithy is the name, if you're a director of something and you make a film and then you think that there's a lot of studio interference or for some other reason you don't want your name on the film and you want to distance yourself from the film, that is the pseudonym that is put on the film. Alan Smithy. No way, that's phenomenal. Yeah, so the Directors Guild of America, they they allow you to do this, or they used to. It's kind of fallen out of favour now. The Writers Guild actually allows its members to use um, names as well. This issue flared in 1968. It was a film called Death of a Gunfighter, right? It was a universal release. It was begun by one director, completed by another. Neither of them wanted credit or future residuals. And the DGA panel just went, okay, well, it's not, it's not representative of, of either your input. And we don't want Universal to run the film without any credit because yeah. that tarnishes the film. And it undermines the idea that directors have prominent billing. So they went with Smithy. So they just made up the name Alan Smithy, put it on movie, and then started from there. Yeah, so like like the airline version of films of of uh, Martin Brest's Scent of a Woman, episodes of MacGyver. Do you know June, which was in the uh, in the cinema last last year? Yeah, uh, obviously that was David Lynch, but the TV version of that 
Alan Smithy, Michael Mann, TV oh, so version. Hang on a second, hang on a second. So, so when you're putting a movie onto its format where it's been, like you always get that thing, especially on on airplanes, this movie has been edited to yeah. make it appropriate for watching on an airplane. Because obviously you could be watching something on the screen in the back of the headrest and there could be a two-year-old sitting beside you and you're not, so they're not supposed to see the things that you're looking at. So they have to edit out some of the violence, obviously some of the sex and scenes, it, all that kind and of stuff. And if you think that has sufficiently impacted on your... Your art. authorship or your art of the film, you go. No, I don't want my I don't want my name associated with that version. So Alan Smithy does it. Wow. Episodes of The Simpsons, MacGyver. That's yeah. phenomenal. And the TV version of of June and the TV version of Heat. Heat, what a movie! It has stopped being popular now for a very specific reason. Right, and try on. and get your head around this, right? So a guy called uh, Joe Esterhas made a film called an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn, right? And the premise of this was that there was a director called Alan Smithy and he wants to take his name off a picture. But the catch <laughs> is that the DGA goes, okay, but the name we have to put on it is Alan Smithy. <laughs> That's right? brilliant. That's brilliant. So this, and, then, and then the word kind of gets out in the public. Lots of people kind of know about this. Right. Now. I think it's actually even been on QI. I'm not sure. Um, so then they went, well, the, the industry went, well, now people know that they see Alan Smithy in a film. It's tarnishing the film. So right. let's stop doing it. And this is brilliant. <laughs> this is fantastic. The film that Esther has made he, uh, the, the director of it didn't like it. No. So he, Estras, was actually the director of the film in the end. It was credited to him rather than the guy called Hiller. Who actually, so he nearly got a movie about a director, nearly got directed by Alan Smithy. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just, it's an actually mind melt, that is. Uh, and I've got one last thing for you. Uh, this isn't really about names, but it's more about kind of identification. Go on. Painting a cow to look like a zebra. <laughs> Is, is illegal sentence. on a number of levels. <laughs> is illegal, <laughs> but great crime. Uh, has been found to reduce fly bites by 50%. No. Yeah. So that is that is one thing I do. Like, I feel so sorry for grazing animals. Like, the reason the grazing animal has a tail is yeah. specifically to swish flies off its arse. Like, nature has, has made it so that it goes, yeah, Perfect animal, four stomachs, you know, flat teeth, <laughs> like, you know, nose in the grass, long neck. It sounds like me after Christmas. Chewing who chewing the cud, chewing the good. There's no interest in, in any kind of other life. This is perfect. And oh, yeah, it's going to be bitten constantly on the arse and on the nose and on the eyes by annoying little pesky flies, which are also part of a delicate ecosystem. And the only weapon it has in its arsenal to get rid of them is a swishing tail. Yeah, you do feel sorry for them, but maybe this is the answer to it. Maybe science has come up with an answer. Maybe a scientist, well, scientists in Japan sat there and were, were similarly moved by the plight of the ruminant. Right. By the way, I should point out that most of the time after they've lived their lives, we chop them up with steaks and put them in burgers. So, you know, you can only feel so sorry for them. Oh, yeah. point. I mean, I think we all know that your uh, empathy was very temporary. All right. <laughs> I've seen you murder a burger. I don't think I don't see you weeping over the bone gone. Oh, my God. Ermintrude tastes absolutely fabulous. But her life was torturous with all those okay. horse flies. So tell me why painting them like zebras reduces the bites. Well, let me tell you what they did. It was about a five-minute process for each animal. They got six pregnant Japanese black cows. They, the stripes were about four centimeters to five centimeters. And they, they, drew, they drew them freehand using okay. a commercial waterborne white lacquer. 
I was a bit disappointed they drew them freehand. I was really hoping that was like the beginning of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Do you know when he's tagging a wall and some <laughs> farmer just appears in a tractor? Just some go, here, do you want to make a few quid there, Banksy? <laughs> what, what do I have to do? You have to glow up a Frisian. Um, so they, they painted these lacquered bovines. Right. They lacquered them afterwards. Uh, two of the cows painted white with white stripes, two with black stripes. And two of them unpainted for a control. Right. And then they repeated it over about nine days. So each cow spends three days striped, being striped, painted black or unpainted. And basically they found out that 55 flies were observed on the zebra cows compared to 111 on the black painted cows and 128 on the control cows. So a um, couple of things jump out. One, I wonder what sort of paintbrushes they use because didn't paintbrushes used to be made of animal hair. So, <laughs> I mean, you don't want to be striping a cow. And then suddenly they're like, is that my uncle Patrick? <laughs> <laughs> but they reckon it impacts on the how flies visualize things, not visualize things, process kind of visual imagery, and it puts them off. It's about modulation, brightness, and polarized light, the authors wrote. That's why flies hate barcodes. Oh, they hate barcodes. They That's famously. Them. Yeah. yeah. When you're when you're in a in a Lidl or an Aldi and it's like unexpected item in the bagging area, it's it's never a fly. That's <laughs> no, the thing. They That's hate the thing them. Is, <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know where Jeff Goldblum fits into any of this. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. Couldn't they just provide the cows, if this is proven to be 50% reduction in fly, you know, populations around cows, couldn't mm. they just give them zebra jackets, like, you know, from, you know, one of the, like, can they just basically dress them up like for Halloween? Well, where's the artistry in that? It's much more crack paint. Just, you know what that is? There's no funding for that. There's a yeah. fella sitting there going, we'll get a grant for painting painted cows. But if you think about this, this is save an absolute fortune, first of all, in cows' health. And pesticides is the thing that mainly yeah. put on cows in certain parts of the world to stop this sort of thing. And then you won't, you won't be driving by fields feeling sorry for them. You'd be driving by a field going, Jesus, global warming's mental. There's loads of zebras in that field. <laughs> Why are the zebras in our club? This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but it's it's funny. You're right about that, though. Other studies have actually showed that horses wearing striped blankets and objects with stripes, flies are less likely to, to land on them. That's brilliant. Honestly, this I gen- genuinely think we found our Dragon's Den pitch, which is zebra cow costumes. Zebra cow costumes. Oh, come on. Like, <laughs> that's definitely going to work. Do you know The Irish Man? You know, have you watched the film The Irish Man? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, nine yeah. hours long, right? Yeah. Um, the, in it, cleaning houses. Isn't it cleaning ha- Or painting yeah, houses. Painting houses. Painting houses is killing somebody. Yeah. What in the name of Jesus is painting zebras? <laughs> hey, man, I wanted you to go over to uh, Philadelphia and uh, paint a zebra for me. And you're like, no problem. I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'm going to do it. Of course, I mean, I kill a guy and then I, I what, what do I do? Bite his neck or something? I... <laughs> Neil's, Neil's just invented the vampire from New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. Jer- New Jersey, the most densely populated state of the Union. You see, there's nothing but facts coming out of this fella. Nothing but facts. Well, if you think I'm good, wait till we talk to a man I've been trying to get for a long time, but he's very busy. Uh, He is Dr. Adam Zaman, and he's going to tell us about aphantasia in part two. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to part two of Why Would You Tell Me That? I am delighted to say we are now joined on the line by Professor Adam Zeman. He's a cognitive neurologist from the University of Exeter's Medical School, and he is the man who coined the term aphantasia itself. Great to have you on the podcast, Professor Zeman. Good to be here. Since you came up with the term, uh, could I ask you to define aphantasia for us? Sure. So aphantasia is lack of the mind's eye, an inability to visualize. So those people who who think, you know, when you go to sleep, you your your dad or your mom when you're having difficulty as a child says to you, just imagine sheep jumping over a fence. Certain people can't do that. And that's essentially what aphantasia is. They don't have that mind's eye, as you say. That's right. They don't have the ability to, to summon imagery to the mind's eye um, in that situation or, or at other times during the during the waking day. So if if one asks somebody with aphantasia to visualize an apple or their front door, or the face of the loved ones, they're unable to do that. And is it debilitating in any way, you know, other than maybe circumstantially? Is it neurologically a problem? Well, that's quite a complex question. I don't, I don't regard it as a disorder. I think of it as a kind of intriguing variation in human experience. I think that it has, it certainly has some associations, some of which um, are disadvantageous, but it also has some advantages. Oh. Let me start briefly with the cons. So, so um, one disadvantage is that people with aphantasia as a group seem to have a slightly thinner than usual autobiographical memory. So when they remember an event from last year's holiday or the last wedding they went to, it's more difficult for them to call details to mind than it is for most of us. And I should perhaps say that although we coined the term in the context of visual imagery, Quite often, aphantasia affects other kinds of imagery too. So if you if you lack visual imagery with aphantasia, you're quite likely to lack auditory imagery as well. Oh. Um, and to have difficulty with using your mind's fingertips, so to speak, or your mind's nose. So, so sensory imagery seems to be generally rather, rather deficient in folk with aphantasia, and that's associated with a, a reduction in the richness of autobiographical memory. 
there are a couple of other interesting associations. So one is with face recognition difficulty. Um, I should say none of these associations apply to everyone. And we think that aphantasia is probably more than one thing. It, if you like, it's a kind of feature of experience which can occur in different contexts. So sometimes associated with autobiographical memory difficulty, sometimes with face rec- recognition difficulty, sometimes with autistic spectrum disorder. Dave, you'll find this interesting. People have reported, obviously a lot of this is reported, people who have aphantasia have reported not liking fiction, for example, because you're not imagining the same thing that somebody who doesn't have aphantasia is imagining when they read a book. Yeah, that's right. So actually a very common anecdote I've heard many times now is I never have the problem that other people have when they go to see the film of the book. Right, okay. And would that not be the case, not just in fiction, but also in an historical biography, for example? You're reading about somebody who lived maybe 300 years ago. You have no way of knowing what they looked like. So you create an image in your mind of a situation, a city and a person. That would then be the same, I suppose, would it? Yeah, I think that's right. Though on the whole, people have fantasia seem to be rather more comfortable with facts. So they prefer right they prefer reading history, popular science to, to fiction. Gotcha. Particularly fiction with a lot of descriptive prose, which doesn't do much for them. So if we if we can broadly put that under cons in inverted commas, yeah. the prose would be okay. what? So well one interesting observation is that if you have a fantasia, you are a little bit more likely than otherwise to be working as a scientist or or in maths or in IT. So it seems to bias people a little to what you might think of as more kind of abstract professions. Is that not slightly counterintuitive? Why do you find it so? Well, in the sense that the abstract nature of those disciplines, maybe it doesn't require imagination, but it isn't like history, for example, where you simply learn off a series of facts and dates and repercussions, and that's how you study it. Well, so it's interesting that you mentioned imagination because another interesting detail here, which I, I was going to mention, is that it's become clear from our work that there's a very important distinction between visualization and imagination. Ah. Well, people who have fantasia can't visualize and they often can't experience imagery and other sense modalities, but they can be highly imaginative. So there are, we now have many good examples of this. One, one rather dramatic one was that quite early on, I had an email from a man called Ed Cutmold who is the, or was until recently, the president of Pixar Disney. And he, wow. he won the, the Turing Prize recently for innovations in computer animation. And he had known for some time that he, he lacked imagery. And he'd become quite interested in this and had begun asking um, artists who worked within Pixar. And his favorite illustrator turned out to be Afantasic. And again, had known this for some time and had He'd had arguments with other illustrators who'd said, but you must be able to visualize because otherwise, how can you draw? He said, well, I, I just do it. And in fact, you know, he said that he, he sort of discovers what it is that he wants to depict by, through the act of drawing. Can we go back to where you came across this first? Because uh, we, we should say we had Susie Dent on the show from Countdown recently. Uh, so she will probably appreciate the origin of the word. Fantasia is, is Greek for imagination. So A as in atypical or, or asymmetrical aphantasia. And Aristotle wrote about the, the kind of sixth sense. Uh, uh, when did you come across aphantasia? It, I believe it was with the, uh, a patient dubbed in the literature MX. Yes, that's right. So... So I first encountered this symptom really in, in, I think, 2003, when I saw a patient in clinic who'd been referred by his GP with the, with a complaint that I'd just never encountered before, which was that he'd lost the ability to imagine, as the, as the referral letter put it. And I thought this was kind of interesting and, and strange. 
he was a very delightful guy, surveyor in his mid-sixties, who'd always had a very vivid visual imagery. He just enjoyed visualizing faces of friends and family and places he'd been to. He used to get himself to sleep by doing that. And he'd had a, a coronary angioplasty, a procedure to enlarge a, one of his coronary arteries. And when he came round from that, he realized that he just couldn't do this anymore. He couldn't call, couldn't summon imagery to mind. So I found this rather intriguing, and we went on and studied him in some detail, ultimately doing a, an fMRI study, a, a brain imaging study, in which we showed that when you and I try to visualize, if we have imagery, we will activate visual regions of the brain. And we showed in MX that when he looked at famous faces, he had normal brain activation, but when he tried to visualize them, he failed to activate these visual areas. So there seemed to be an, an interesting sort of correlate um, for the change he described in his experience. And I didn't expect this to go too much further. We, we wrote a paper about him, but it, I thought it was quite an obscure paper. <laughs> but it got picked up by an American science journalist uh, who wrote an article in Discover about MX. And then over the next few years, people began getting in touch saying, we're just like this guy, but we always have been. I always realized there's something a little bit different about me. When other people reminisce, talk about last year's holiday, they seem to have an, exp an experience which is a bit visual, but I can't generate that kind of experience. And so once about 20, 20 or so such folk had got in touch, we thought we should describe them. Uh, and the phenomenon seemed to lack a name. So there were various slightly obscure terms in the literature like visually reminiscence and defective revisualization. So I thought it needed a, a, a catchier <laughs> term. And so that was, that was how, that, that was the reason for coining the term aphantasia. And that seemed to do, do the trick. I think words are quite powerful things. And since then, about 16,000 people have been, been in touch. Wow. And do we know roughly how many people in the general population have some degree of aphantasia, either for one modality or global? Using, it's focusing on visual imagery, we think that the frequency of aphantasia in the general population is around about 3%. It depends a bit where you draw the line and how you, how you so to speak, diagnose aphantasia. So we've been, we've been using a questionnaire, well-known questionnaire called the Vividness of Visual Imagery Questionnaire, which invites you to visualize 16 scenarios and then rate your image from as vivid as a real scene, which gives you a, a score of 5 over 5, to no image at all and just thinking about it, which gives you a score of 1 over 5. Mm. So 16 over 80 is the lowest available score, and clearly somebody who scores 16 has aphantasia, but then you can, you can draw your, your cutoff Anywhere above that, we, for various reasons, we put it at 23 over 80. The frequency is around about 3%. And do you think then that if people got in touch and said, I've always been like this, is it hereditary? Are you born with it? Or is it something like yeah. what happened to MX, where he had a heart operation that then caused this issue? Yeah, so the three the, the great majority of people within that 3 or 4% have lifelong aphantasia. So far as they can remember, they've always been that way. And we think it probably is partly genetic. I'm slightly sticking my neck out here, but certainly if you have uh, aphantasia, there is a roughly tenfold increase in the likelihood that one of your first-degree relatives will have it. Oh. So it's certainly familial, and you know most psychological traits are partly genetic, so the, my hunch is that it will turn out to be to some degree genetic. Yeah. In MX's case, what was it about the angioplasty that caused his his aphantasia to occur? That's a, that's a very good question. We don't really know. Um, we didn't see him until a few months after that, so it was a bit late to establish for sure whether or not he'd had a small stroke, which would have been of course, right. probably the likeliest explanation. 
when I began, so this symptom was new to me, but when I began reading about it, I discovered that there were about 100 cases described since the 19th century of people who'd lost imagery following various forms of brain injury, um, often traumatic brain injury, occasionally stroke, meningitis. Also, interestingly, there are some psychiatric causes for losing imagery, so um, depression can do it, depersonalization can do it. I'm glad you mentioned the 19th century there as well, because there was some awareness of, it's not called aphantasia then, but it's some awareness of this idea that you would find it difficult to visualize things. I mean, Francis Galton did a did a survey on this, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. So he was really the first person to quantify many psychological um, characteristics, but he, he took a particular interest in imagery. He devised a questionnaire, it's a rather beautiful 19th century questionnaire, in which he asks people to visualize their breakfast table. As they, you know, as they left it this morning, and uh, he discovered that among his participants, many of whom were actually scientific colleagues of his, there were quite a number who reported that their power of visualization was zero, as as he put it. So he recognised that there were people who had real difficulty visualising. But then, curiously, that observation was really, really was was never picked up again um, until pretty recently. One American psychologist. Uh, who was himself aphantasic, surveyed his students and noticed and, and came up with a, a frequency quite close to the one that we've observed. So if you can have somebody who has a 16 out of 80, shall we say, as, as the score, and that makes them aphantasic, you can also have the other end. You could have someone who is almost 80 out of 80, yep. they're getting 5 out of 5. Is that hyperphantasic? So, we've, so we call that hyperphantasia. It seems to be a little bit more common. So the the kind of bell curve for vividness, if you like, is squashed up towards the high end. So there are about 10% of folk maybe who have scores that one might call hyperphantasic, 75 over 80 and above. I have something that will blow your mind, Dave. When I was reading into this, I always like trying to uh, wow Dave with some, some strange element of a story. Um, people who may not have the capacity or diminished capacity for visual uh, visualization while they are awake some of them can dream. And M- Yes. MX, I think, dreamt in storyline after he had whatever instance caused him to have uh, aphantasia. But other people, uh, and quite a high percentage, I think it was like 62, 63%, was it? Slightly, slightly more than half of those with aphantasia who lack imagery during the day experience visual imagery in dreams, sometimes very vividly. And that, that may sound fairly crazy, but actually neurologically, it's not so crazy because the... The brain's in a very different state uh, during dream sleep, both in terms of kind of chemistry and the the regional activation of the brain. And I think maybe the simplest way of thinking about it is that if you if I ask you to visualize an apple, no, that's a very kind of top-down task. You're you're and you're going to if you if you try to do it, you're going to be using regions of the brain that are involved in controlling what we think about to drive the visual system and generate a visual image. Whereas dreaming is much more of a bottom-up kind of process. It's involuntary. Although, in both cases, you probably use your visual system to generate the, the image. The way in which the image gets kicked off is very different in the two cases, in the wakeful case and the, the, the dreaming case. I wonder ourselves and anyone listening, is there a way in which you could, without doing your 16 visualization questionnaire is there a way in which you can determine or have an indication as to whether or not you may be aphantasic and maybe don't know about it yeah i think the point of departure really is your own introspection 
one interesting reaction that many people with aphantasia have reported is that they they say, well, you know, I'd always assumed that when people talk about seeing with the mind's eye, and it's it's kind of it's a figure of speech, it's a metaphor, and, that, and their discovery is that actually people are are describing something somewhat literal when when they they say they're 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 seeing. But the kind of question, the underlying question which you're raising, I guess, is how can we be sure that when people say they lack imagery, they really do? It's difficult to be sure about one's own experience and difficult to know how it relates to other people's. But there are there are some um, more um, objective measures uh, coming along, which are quite interesting. So one of them has to do with the pupils. So if you have imagery and you imagine looking at a bright sun, your pupils constrict. Wow. If you have imagery and you imagine looking into a dark cellar, your pupils dilate slightly. No way. That doesn't happen in people with aphantasia. That's incredible. This work comes from Sydney. So there's a guy called Joel Pearson, who's a, a very good imagery researcher in Sydney, who's, who's responsible for that observation and for this one. So I really like this. He showed that if you tell, if you read people's scary stories, not surprisingly, they sweat a little. So you know, you're, 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 you're enjoying yourself in a warm bay, floating. You notice at some point that people on the beach seem to be looking towards you. You turn your head around, you see there's a fin advancing towards you, and things go from bad to worse. That makes people sweat, reading that story. Wow. <laughs> but not people with aphantasia. I'm glad an Australian came up with that rather than you in Exeter. Yes. It's slightly more threatening <laughs> if it actually could happen, rather than this yeah. Devon-based yeah. Uh, shark coming out of the water towards you. So it, it seems that, that what mediates between a, a verbal description and a, a physical reaction is, is imagery. And and if you don't if you don't generate an image to that kind of description, you won't produce that autonomic physical reaction. And he, they, Joel Kirsten's team did the nice control experiment. They showed people that Fantasia scary pictures, and they do react to those. Wow! Not that there's a general failure of reactivity. It's that it's the imagination of the story that will the imagination to, to that will in it'll win yeah. engender. So if, if someone can dream, I know you said it's a, it's a top-down versus a bottom-up kind of case, you know, consciousness versus kind of not conscious. But that would suggest, though, that the hardware, shall we say, is, is there, but the software isn't engaging, shall we say. Can you train yourself to be a better visualizer? Yeah. So I think that's not a bad, not a bad way of putting it. I mean, in a, just before I answer the question... Directly, in a sense, that has to be true, doesn't it? Because people with aphantasia, on the whole, can recognise things fine. So they clearly know if they know, in some sense, what things look like. What they have trouble doing is generating an image on the basis of that knowledge. And I think the best bet probably is that there's some abnormality of wiring or connectivity in the brain, if you like, which makes it difficult for them to, to do that. Most psychological abilities can be trained, so it would be surprising if imagery couldn't be, but. A lot of people with aphantasia now have told me that they've tried, and the vast majority have failed. So I think it's I think it's not easy for people with aphantasia to overcome whatever the whatever the underlying obstacle is. I'm wondering, does it affect anything like, for example, a cognitive map? Is that a visual thing? Whereas if I think to myself, if I get off the train at this station and I need to go to this place, I know where I need to walk. Do people with aphantasia? Are they familiar with that kind of direction, or is that an image-based thing? So that's a really nice question, and we we probed that in a way. With a, so the way we responded to all the many thousands of contacts we received was to send people a visual imagery questionnaire, but also to send them what we call the imagery questionnaire, which is a questionnaire just asking a, 
a range of questions which he thought we thought might be would be interesting to answer. And one of these is count the number of windows in your house or apartment without leaving your chair. And people with aphantasia on the whole can do that absolutely fine. And when you ask them how they say, well, I've got some sort of mental map, I'm not seeing it, but just where the windows are. And there is there seems to be a distinction, or there is kind of the- a theoretical distinction between object imagery, so imagining the visual properties of objects, and spatial imagery, which is this more kind of schematic understanding of the, of, of the spatial arrangement of things. And that seems to be preserved in people with aphantasia. And that may be relevant to to their liking for science, because that kind of understanding is probably quite relevant to science. Very much so, yeah. It, it doesn't seem to be any barrier to loads of careers, because as you said, animation, which I think is definitely counterintuitive because that deals is with images, um, is there's no bar to that. Uh, Richard Herring, the well-known comedian, I saw recently said that he has aphantasia, and he's certainly extremely creative. Um, it seems to me that people's brains are extremely plastic, to use that phrase, and people can figure, they don't even know they're doing it, same, same way MX didn't know. They figure out, their brain figures out different ways to retain information. It's just not based on what it was maybe before they had that angioplasty in that, that person's case. I very much agree. I think this is, I think this is one you know, tiny piece in the, in the big jigsaw of cognition. And I think if you have imagery, you, you'll probably use it in your, in your thinking. If you don't, there, there, there are clearly many other ways to, to get to where you want to go. And just coming back to the very beginning of the conversation about advantages and disadvantages, one rather intriguing potential advantage, we haven't really sort of proven this scientifically, it's, it's still just an anecdotal level, but it seems quite plausible. One, one possible advantage is that if you're aphantasic, you, you may be a little more present than if you're hyperphantasic. So, you know, a bit less likely to be thinking about the place you just left or what you have what you're going to be up to tomorrow and better able to, to deal with what's before you here and now. Is it related in any way to synesthesia, for example? We think it is. In our data, there's a little bit of conflict about this in the literature, but in, in our data, there's an association between hyperphantasia and synesthesia. Can we define synesthesia for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what that is? Yeah, of course. So synesthesia is the sometimes called the merging of the senses. So people with synesthesia, for example, may taste shapes or may see a particular letter in a, in a certain color. And it's, it's quite often one of the uh, feature experience which is associated with synesthesia is seeing time spatially. So there are, there are people who, who, when they think about the week ahead, always see a particular spatial arrangement unfolding in front of them. Um, has there been much research in terms of um, hallucinogenic drugs and people who have aphantasia? Uh, there hasn't been much for research, but I have talked to quite a few people about it, and it seems that um, my impression is that if you're aphantasic, you are quite likely to have visual experiences with a psychedelic, but it's a bit like dreaming. Um, it's not an experience that you can really control, and once the drug's worn off, you won't be able to re- recapture it. And um, I slightly have the impression that people with aphantasia might be a little more resistant to those agents than people with vivid imagery, but, uh, but that, so, so that, that's the same. There are people that have encountered people with aphantasia who have said that psychedelics really didn't do very much for them, certainly didn't generate much in the way of imagery. I'm a musician, and my whole career I've worked in radio or music or recording studios. And you mentioned at the beginning that aphantasia is not just the visual imagery, it can also be auditory. Have you come across any musicians in your studies who have said that they just 
can't imagine any song or hear any song ever in my head. I'm just really interested in a general sense in that. So that's interesting. So we one of the big surprises for us was that there is, seems to be quite a large group of aphantasic artists. So it goes along with the observation that aphantasia isn't a bar to imagination and indeed it might be a stimulus in some ways. I don't think I've yet come across anyone who's told me that he's a, a composer without a mind's ear. Ear, yeah. <laughs> but... But there may well be. The answer to that question is always more research needs to be done. So we are now applying for a grant. That is always the answer to all of those questions. I have one final question on MX. Um, Given that it was something that specifically happened to him, uh, possibly stroke related anyway, related to the angioplasty, uh, was it temporary? Did he redevelop the um, ability to visualize or? So I've kept in touch with MX and a couple of things happened. So first of all, as you've mentioned, his his dreams became a-visual for a year or two, but then he began to dream visually again, even though he didn't recover voluntary oh. imagery. So you see that same dissociation between dreaming, dream imagery and wakeful imagery. Uh, the other thing that happened was that he said, um, and in a way this speaks to the same distinction, he said that if so- occasionally if someone mentions a place he knows very well, he'll just see it flash in front of him for a moment. But as if somebody was flicking through the pages of an album and it just he just caught it for a second and can't hold on to it. Oh, how frustrating. <laughs> and he can't, he can't generate it for himself. Wow. Tantalizingly close. Professor Adam Zeman of the uh, University of Exeter's Medical School. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. It took us a while to nail down a time because he's a very busy man, Dave, but he has answered the question, why would you tell me that? Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much indeed. I've enjoyed it. Welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That? Well, Dave, not only is it good enough to get somebody who can talk about something as interesting as aphantasia, but to get the man who coined the phrase. Come on. Yeah, look, uh, look, it's a level of guest get that I have yet to achieve. You're now in the lead with getting somebody who actually coined a phrase. He was brilliant. Professor Zeman was absolutely amazing. I do think, I didn't want to say it to Professor Sim, but I was thinking, you know the song Imagine by John Lennon? If you have aphantasia, it must be slightly frustrating with that. You know that line, imagine there is no heaven. Like, it's easy. If you try, you're going, hold on, John. It's not easy for all of us. Just just be a bit more diverse in your thinking. <laughs> you don't understand, John Lennon. You don't understand how hard it is. No, that is true. Uh, it is just an amazing insight into a neurological condition that I knew literally nothing about. It's phenomenal. And that, that test, the idea that they figured out, how clever would you have to be to figure out that test? So if I tell you, first of all, if I shine a bright light into your eyes, your pupils will constrict. Mm. If I then tell you to imagine it and you don't have this uh, type of aphantasia, your pupils constrict. Like, yeah. just, like your mind-body link, anytime I hear anything about it, I, I'm just kind of blown away by it. But listen, that's enough for this episode. I think I've done quite well. So that remi- <laughs> all that remains for me to do is see what Johnny Big Balls, <laughs> Dave Multimillionaire Moore, as my car calls him, is. <laughs> that's what you're in my phone as. Um, what do you have to bring to the table next week? Okay. Um, it's Oscar time. The Oscar's massive. Yes. We're going to talk about a man who was one of the founding members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts, whatever it's called, the Academy, a founding member of the Academy. Yeah. Won 11 Oscars. Ooh. And designed the Oscar statue. And he's Irish. Oh, okay. Come on. 
Okay, I mean that you, you've raised the level there. He designed possibly the most famous trophy in the world. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. So we're going to have a hell of a conversation about that next week. Don't forget to go get your tickets. So why would you tell me that live fourth of April in Smock Alley? Everywhere you can get tickets uh, to find us, Smock Alley's website, Neil's website, all of our socials, our link trees in the show notes. Get your tickets. And don't forget, news just in, I've just added an extra Vicar Street, September the 30th of the current tour. It's called Delamirium. So come to Smock Alley, have your appetite wetted, and then come to a full show with me, yours truly. Forget about it. Right. <laughs> Join us next week. Thanks a million. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 